What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Totally 80s. The podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another Safe at Home episode of Totally 80s. And since we're all at home, obviously, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas at podcast at totally80s.com. Just a reminder, if you want to see our faces at home, you can catch this episode on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check it out. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, the other John Hughes. Hey, Lindsay. What's going on? How you been? I've been all right. I've been all right. Uh, still <laughs> home. Still at home. Uh, I did some home decorating day I, uh, or over the weekend. I, you should be, even though this is a 70s thing, I think you will appreciate that I finally framed all of my lobby cars from the Sgt. Pepper movie. And oh. they have a home right next to the framed poison from Japan poster uh, in my kitchen. Because, you know, only the finest art for my walls. <laughs> next, to the, next to the Nagels, I've got, you know, the other fine art. How have you been? I've been okay. I've been uh, doing a lot of podcasts, strangely enough. <laughs> you don't say. You don't say. But no, it's really good. I'm I'm catching up on a lot of my archival television uh, streaming, which is, you know, perfect for what we're talking about today. Absolutely. Who would have thought back in the days we were sitting around watching Don Kirshner's rock concert or MV3 or Night Flight or Fame or any of the other shows we're going to talk about that in the future, we would be able to watch all those on YouTube at the uh, click of a button. It's what strange. a time to be alive. What a time to be alive, John. It's an embarrassment of riches. And boy, I'm like Uncle Scrooge in the vault, like doing a backstroke. On well, a bunch I'm, of coins. <laughs> I'm excited to dip back in the vault with our special guest today, who is a producer, director, writer, visual artist, and pop culture documentarian. I know we're going to be best friends. I don't know how I didn't know her already. So, John, please, I want to thank you for uh, in introducing us this way virtually. She has directed multiple music videos for artists like Juliana Hatfield and Creamer, and she is the creator of the instant cult classic Network 77, a retro, a retro futuristic collection of comedy and music. And under that umbrella, she has developed music programming for the Hayden Triplets, Star Pop, and most recently, Music. And she's also an experienced podcast guest. So this is going to be a true meeting of the minds. We are very, we are very happy to welcome to Totally 80s. I'm choked up. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> Rachel Lichtman. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much. What an introduction. It almost seems like I've done stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, you know, according to this thing John wrote for me, you're an experienced podcast guest. So no pressure, but I'm expecting you to bring the knowledge. I have no doubt that you're going to be able to, because this is a subject that's near and dear to all of our hearts. We all yeah. grew up with this stuff. Now, we did a podcast, John and I, with uh, Adam Schlesinger from Founds of Wave really recently. back. We taped it back in January, sadly. And actually, since you're speaking about podcasts, John, you did a wonderful series for Rhino about Adam's legacy that people should check out. But the right. one that we did for totally 80s was about MTV and our first time with MTV. And for a lot of people, when you think music television, you think, well, you think music television, which is what MTV stands for. And that was a big, you know, entry point for music for me on TV. But that was just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Before MTV was around and after, there were lots of other ways, if you didn't have cable even, to get your uh, to get your music fix on television. So John, why don't we why don't we go back in time? All the way at the beginning, before 19, August 1981, before there was MTV, there was. Well, you had uh, network television was like your one bastion of getting to see some of your artists. You got you had the last days of Don Kirshner's rock concert, which was syndicated. And on NBC, you had the Midnight Special still. And it was like, you know, a big deal when someone like David Bowie would be on because he was so mysterious. You never got to like really see him on a regular basis, except on an album cover that you would stare at for hours as the record spun. So these shows were, you know, at the time I was years old, I would sneak up to watch them on a little black and white TV in my bedroom. And I wasn't allowed to be up that late, uh, but that didn't stop me. Um, and hey, I know you had SNL and Fridays. Fridays was such a touchstone for me for people that don't know Fridays. It was, ABC's answer to uh, Saturday Night Live, except that, <laughs> hey, it was on Fridays. And they would have like a little edgier musical guest. They would have like the new wave punk guests. Like they had the Clash, the Pretenders. Uh, you know, there was some crossover. Devo did both shows. But boy, Fridays was my jam. And, and you know, this was all right before 1981 when MTV changed everything. What about for you, Rachel? Like when you were a, a child, you know, watching TV, what were the shows uh, that sort of were the ones that open your mind to music in the beginning, especially before MTV was around? Oh, there were so many. Um, well, also you mentioned uh, Midnight Special, but then Dick Eppersall produced uh, Friday Night Videos as well was another one. And um, and that was on N NBC. There were a lot of things popping up at that time because uh, after MTV debuted, not everybody had the cable. So, you know, they so they came up with stuff that they could quickly replace. And there was this weird transition between obviously solid gold, which we'll get to. And, mm. but it was also the dance shows as well um, because soul train and American bandstand. Was yes. And so anyway, you had, um, you had a, a lot of regional stuff and you had syndicated mm. stuff that had already been established. And there was this real transition from like once MTV came in because everything was kind of based on radio airplay in a weird way. It was like, um, it was charts. It was like countdown based entertainment you know and then they started to try and figure out how to incorporate more videos into the programming and then that started to almost weirdly like wag the dog in terms of like 
record sales. Would that be correct, John Hughes? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, you had those those stories, which you know, I don't think they're apocryphal. I think they're actually true of kids going to the local Camelot Music in Iowa and asking for a Duran Duran record, and the right. clerks going, "What? Huh? What's this?" And the radio stations having to play catch up for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do want to post something because you talked about the dance shows. American Bandstand really uh, looms large in my own family history. It's a big story that my mother loves to tell. This is going back to the 50s. But in the 1950s, I'm so my mother's daughter. In 1950, whatever, I guess 56 it would have been-ish, she is a 14-year-old living in Boston. She and her friend were allowed to take a train to Philadelphia. and or I actually, no, they didn't take a train. They took a bus because she said it was a nine-hour journey. So it must have been a bus. And they got to dance for two days on American Bandstand. And she, to this day, and she's in her 70s now, say it was one of the best moments of her entire life. She remembers, you know, what she wore. She remembers how excited she was. And she used to talk about that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm, you know, I, that's some, I did my own 80s and 90s versions of that. So American Bandstand was huge for kids from the 50s through the 80s at least maybe into the 90s there was also soul train there were a lot of regional shows one of which in la i definitely want to talk about later on there were you know the, the movie hairspray is based on this you know there was club mtv later in the late 80s which turned into the grind in the 90s why are there no shows like this now like there is no american bandstand or soul train or mv3 for kids now not online you'd think there'd be an online version of it where people could like kind of virtually dance or whatever because in those like not only did it have every single huge in the 80s you know madonna's first t major tv appearance was on american bandstand and i so vividly remember her being on telling dick clark that she was going to rule the world and it was such an iconic moment in her career everyone laughed at the time obviously she was right that it, that moment was spoofed on rupaul's drag race this year there's a like a spoof of her on american bandstand singing i want to rule the world it was you know so every major artist was on there and every budding artist was on there we all remember like prince being on there x was on there everyone and then there were other versions of it but there's and, but the dancers were just as famous and, you know, the soul train dance line was so important. Like the, the culture of the dancers was such a big deal. You'd think there'd be a modern day interactive version of this and there's no dance show right now. Let me counter that. There is, it's called TikTok. It's not the same. It's not, there's no game. It's the, uh, somebody... I to say something about the dance shows if I may. Yeah. Okay. First of all, um, there there is one, and it's called Chicago, and it's been on uh, public access, on, purposely on public access Chicago television for years and years and years, headed up by Jake Austin. Jake Austin is uh, this amazing guy. He wrote a book called TV A Go Go, which is all about music on television from all the way down the lines, from you know what I mean, like Standells on the Monsters or whatever. Like it's it's all about that, and Chicago. Wow takes place in the public access studio where all kinds of bands like, you know, it's like Bobby Kahn will play it. And, and it's just kids and people that they grab on the South side of Chicago that come in and do it. So Jake's been sort of keeping this flame going. It's just not a syndicated show. Yeah, it needs to be, it needs to be. Right, but the problem with this dance show, this is the point I wanna make. The reason they stopped succeeding is because, well, they basically petered out in the nineties, okay? And in the 90s is when the, the business changed, like the way that the music was being marketed changed. 
and the whole reason that these shows are so great and they worked is because generally they were integrated they were multiple they were, they were not just one genre or another it was everything that was like on the charts which could be it, it's a it's a huge spectrum of artists okay when they started narrow casting or you know like genre based so you're pushing toward your very specific marketed audience okay I think they stopped feeling like these shows had any value because then they tried to get really specific about who they were marketing to. And that's not that fun. That's not, that's not fun. And I think there's still some residual trauma on how those shows petered out. I mean, yes. think about how sad American yeah. Bandstand went out. Oh, yeah. It got moved from ABC to the USA network for yeah. its last season. It's got a great beat. It's easy to dance to and you'll give it a 10. It's American Bandstand on USA. Next. They replaced Dick Clark. They replaced Dick Clark with some generic blonde white dude. It's like, who are you? We don't know. Was it, was it Alan Fawcett? No, we're like, who's putting on the hits? By the way, we have to oh talk. My God. We yeah. will, but before we do, because I will go off on putting on the hits. Since we're <laughs> on the subject of American Bandstand, since we're on the subject of American Bandstand, yeah. actually, this is funny. This is something that was like a thing with American Bandstand. This was a thing with all of the dance shows where they had live performances that were not really live. They were like how they were on top of the pops, not live. Solid right. Gold the same way. We'll talk about Solid Gold. Everyone would obviously lip sync and there were technical reasons. There were, you know, convenience reasons why the artists, if they went on American Bandstand, would not perform live. But they always would be like, for some reason, every song in the 80s, instead of just having like an end point, like always faded out, like was always a radio edit that faded out. And there was always this super awkward moment where, you know, Madonna or Prince or whoever are like, ah, and they're still kind of lip syncing as the song is fading out. And when I was a little kid watching all of these shows, I'd be like, how are they doing that with their voice? That's so cool. Like, I didn't realize that they were lip sync. I just thought they were so good that they could sound exactly like their record. And I was like, but they were like kind of awkwardly like swaying from side to side, trying to lip sync to the fade out. Why didn't they just figure something out? They tried to punch in the applause early. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> but never, they never overlapped it right. Yeah. We'll talk about a proper lip syncing show put, put on the hits where the lip syncing worked beautifully. But when we're talking about iconic performances from any of these shows, American Bandstand and Soul Train being the big two, but there were also, you know, some some other like club. I have a club MTV one that sticks out in my mind. I mentioned Madonna. Um, I do want to mention Prince more for the interview. The thing about when he was on, and I think it was 1980, his one of his first major TV appearances, Dick Clark, you know, God bless him, what he created, the legacy he had. American Bandstand was not the same once he left, as John said. He wasn't the best interviewer. All his interviews were so awkward. Like, he'd be like, he, he goes up to Prince and he's like, so, your music, that's not typical of what's going on in Minneapolis. And like... in Minneapolis. Where? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not the kind of music that comes from Minneapolis, Minnesota. No. <laughs> uh, there's one he did with X where x is giving him one-word answers. Prince wasn't even giving him one-word answers. He was, like, giving him sign language answers. <laughs> the awkwardness of these shows was part of its charm, I think. Uh, though that kind of worked in his favor sometimes though because th this is the nerdy nerdy going down a real rabbit hole thing if you want to do this watch all the times sparks was on american bandstand and 
he, uh, Dick Clark and Ron Mayle kind of have this running joke that goes through all these appearances. Yeah. Of, Here's your brother. My, he's the strange one, isn't he, Russell? And it's just like you watch this and it's like your dad. You kind of want to give him a hug. Would you, would you please tell me one thing, how long it took to get that shot of Ron? Exactly 12 throws of the pie because he said they were heavy and they hurt. I always hesitate to do this. Did you like doing this, Ron? I'll do anything for a good cover. <laughs> What's not? Yeah, I will also go a step further and say that uh, Dick Clark loved hosting $100,000 Pyramid like 20 times more than American Bandstand, okay? Yeah. He was living for life with his leg up in the winner's circle, like giving his suggestions for what you should have said. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's into the gameplay. He's dry, and and it, I agree. There is a there is a way that it works on bandstand because it's cool. It, there's something cool about that package. You know what I mean? Of him just being the guy. I, I will say, my mom said he was a dick when she was. Oh, he's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> she just said like he wasn't nice, even though he was supposed to be like America's oldest living teenager oh, no. or like never aging teenager. He he didn't like the kids. Like oh, a lot of the kids wanted to meet him or you know get an autograph or something because he was they looked up to him and he was not having it. But are some of the performances that I remember from both uh, some of these shows? I mentioned the X performance just because it was so cool, as you say, Rachel, that they would have just anyone on. Like X were not ever a nationally huge band. They were right. big in LA here, never nationally huge. They were on Wham! when they were first on and they did Young Guns Go For It. And I believe they did a second song. I think they did um, probably probably Bad Boys, but they, they had the choreography. It was so cool. Uh, I also, for some bizarre reason, actually it's not a bizarre reason. I figured it out, I'm like, why is the Scritti Politti performance sticking out from 1985 or 1986 sticking out in my mind. It's because a friend of mine danced on the show, so we tuned in to watch him and his like monster ta and dance. I wanted to dance on the show so bad and you know fulfill yeah. the Parker family legacy that my mother had set up, and I never got to. But it, that was the thing is like there were just it felt like it was our show, even though this like old crabby guy he probably wasn't that old, but if he seemed old. Can I, can I just say, you're bringing up a really good point, which is, is something that really extends to not just like the regional feeling that we discuss it. I mean, obviously things went into syndication, but like there was an accessibility to being a part of something. And um, and it did it did cross all kinds of boundaries and lines. It wasn't it, it was music for all like and also it, it also lent itself to a measure of discovery if there was something you were waiting for or like you waiting for a performance of somebody, whatever, um, or even on MTV waiting for, um, you know, the new moon on Monday video for three hours or whatever, like someone might do one. Might. Yeah. Who would do that? I don't I know. Can't imagine doing that. Who would do that? Monday video for three hours in that three hours, you're going to discover a whole bunch of stuff or sit through a whole bunch of stuff that normally you would not be open to. And, um, being able to even go to these shows and dance on them and Philadelphia being a huge uh, city for that um, as well as uh, Chicago. And, um, but even like soul train, you know, it's like, you know, Bowie was on soul train too. Culture, you know? It's like, they just, culture club were on soul train. They, yeah, you know, like, well, culture club. Ugh. <laughs> they are the best. I mean, really. The A team. Okay. So we'll get to that. But, that's another podcast for sure. Yes. Well, if we're talking about sorry, Rachel. If we're if we're talking about guests that made an impact on people on American yeah. Bandstand, 
it might be on the cusp. I haven't done my research on this, so forgive me if my year is wrong, but Public Image Limited on American Bandstand. We can't go without mentioning that and yeah. how actually cool Dick Clark was about it. He could have been like, I've lost control of my show and he could have been a real jerk, but he was like, hey, everybody go go on the stage, dance. He was into it. Clark's concerned, like he doesn't care if you're Jerry and the Pacemakers or Public Image Limited. He doesn't know who you are. <laughs> I will, I do want to bring up a, uh, I do want to bring up a fun out of control moment because the MTV equivalent in the 80s, in the later 80s of all of these shows was Club MTV. It was, and I remember when Red Hot Chili Peppers were on, it must have been around 1989 because they were performing Higher Ground. So it was the right. tail end of the 80s. And they don't like to lip sync, you know, at all. They, they've, there's been times like at the Super Bowl where they've kind of had to, but they don't like to. And they were told like, you have to, this is how the format is. This is not a format in which it's logistically possible for you to perform live. So going back to the awkward lip syncing whole conceit of these shows, they were not even going to pretend that they were really playing live. Like they, they just start climbing on the scaffolding, like, you know, Chad Smith's not even on the drums. He's like out in the audience. Lee is like, it's just complete chaos and downtown Julie Brown, not to be confused with the other Julie Brown on MTV, Miss Wubba 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 herself. She's just letting it happen. And it was, it was very anarchic in its own way. And again, I liked the fact that sometimes these shows allowed things to sort of not be totally polished, which, you know, TV shows are now, it's like bad lip syncing, bad interviews, whatever, anything goes. That's part of the charm. Or having Waylon Flowers and Madam be a special guest on your show on a regular basis. Right. Shows featuring lip syncing, Solid Gold. Well, okay. thing about Solid Gold, hold on, I'm just going to break in here for a minute, Jerry. Uh, so anyway, the Solid Gold, like here's this thing, here's this juggernaut that basically also a lot of the hosts that they were trying to hire are, were, were so random. Like, you know, you're like, are, are you a disc jockey? Are you a personality? Are you a former soul singer, you know? And um, putting this thing together where it was like, I feel like they were still coming off that 70s thing of variety where there's a ratio of comedy to music. And it depends on, like you mentioned Fridays, it's like comedy to music or SCTV especially. Um, where uh, you know Dave Thomas was like, anytime we had music come on, it was five minutes less that we had to write, <laughs> which I'm all here for. But um, but Solid Gold's version of that was so interesting. Oh, yeah. Again, countdown based entertainment, you know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, Darcel. Yes. Let's talk. I want to get deep dive into Solid Gold because I've been waiting to use this pun for the entire podcast. It was the gold standard yep. of music shows in the 80s. All right, yep. I'll see myself out, sorry. Now that I've said that, yeah. To me it was though, it did start in 1980. So it started before MTV and right at that really, as you mentioned, Rachel, that interesting cusp of coming out of like um, the 70s, bonkers variety shows like Cher and Donnie and Marie and everyone had a variety show in the 70s. I mean, the fact that you mentioned Madam Whalem, Madam like John, like that's not an '80s reference. That's a solid '70s oh, yeah. reference. So it was kind of coming out of that, but then it lasted until I think like 1988 or something. So it, you know, it tried, but it never really shook that '70s spandex thing. And I'm fine with it. But that was a show that really mattered a lot to me. I loved, you know, I being uh, a young girl, then I crushed very hard on a couple latter day hosts because, as you mentioned, Rachel, like the hosts were all over the place. Andy Gibb. 
and Rex Smith. It seemed to be a place where like 70s blonde feathered hair teen idols went to try to restart their career. But then we had Dionne Warwick on and Marilyn McCoo. It's just like, who wants to host this thing? I think Rick Dees did it for a minute. Well, they finally settled on Rick Dees' like resting bitch voice or whatever. They like they were like, just bring in the bring in the pro, whatever. And that was also the around the time of like that real people vibe of approach to reality and variety. So like mm -hmm. just this like super mixed bag. But again, like you, you talk about who's producing these things. It's like you're talking about cigar chomping guys who are like, what's on the charts, you know? And that kind of continued even through the MTV era. Like they didn't really change much. I feel like I kind of bailed on solid gold around like 84, 85. Probably like, for the best. Don't forget, who, don't forget who hosted the last two years of solid gold. I Ars have forgotten. Arsenio Hall. Right. Really? He was the host from 86 to 88. You know, the, again, I talk about shows that kind of go out with the whimper. This poor guy had to prop this thing up. Oh, well, he did all right. But you know what's interesting is I was when I was thinking, preparing for this, like what are my memories of Solid Gold? Even though I have some fond memories of all these rando hosts that showed up, even though I have a couple fond memories of performances, it's kind of actually hard to remember a specific performance because literally everyone who was on the charts at some point made their way onto the show. You know, everyone played on Solid Gold. But I think, you know, since we're talking about dancers, Solid Gold was all about the dancers. You mentioned Darcel, Rachel. She yeah. was the main one. And I think she was a choreographer as well. Do you watch a show called... Um, it's called, well, it's gone. It was only for one one season. It was Paula Abdul's attempt to do her own kind of So You Think You Can Dance reality show, maybe about five, somewhere between five and 10 years ago. It was called Live to Dance. It was on one of the major three networks. It, it was a bomb. But three of the solid gold dancers who probably were now in their 50s auditioned for it. They were called Beyond Gold. It was Darcel. It was Deborah Jensen and it was Leslie Mogel. They couldn't quite move the way they used to, but they still looked pretty good. I will hire Beyond Gold right now. Like, <laughs> John, get them on the phone. I am like, get Darcel in. Is she a Christian now? Whatever. Like, let's get her. But the dancers were so sexy and hot. And honestly, like watching this as a kid, it was like almost like soft porn. It was almost oh. the predecessor the predecessor to Showgirls, the movie Showgirls, the way they danced. It was very like Satan's Alley from Staying Alive, like the sexy, sexy <laughs> dancing. And they were really like always in spandex. The spandex budget for Saul Gold probably was higher than the clearance music budget for Saul Gold. There was a lot of spandex. Does anyone have any uh, memories of sort of looking up to any of these dancers? I was a fan of Darcel. Go ahead, John. I remember not so much the the actual show, but the SCTV parody of the Solid Gold Dancers on the Dusty Town Christmas Special. Yeah. <laughs> As a Solid Gold Dancer doing the most vulgar dance moves with the Jewel Hallmeyer dancers. And it's so perfect. And it was so well done. Yeah. I do remember, of all things, again, I'm going to go back to them. I mentioned them already once in this podcast. Don't ask me why. Sparks performing I Wish I Looked a Little Better on Solid Gold. They do I Predict because I seem to have a memory of I Predict. But, you know. I'm sure they did. Together. Just I remember just the uh, robotic new wave dancing that the dancers were doing during the Sparks performance. And even as a kid, I knew this was horribly great. I remember how much my dad isn't that into music and uh, didn't really want to ever uh, watch, you know, music television with me. My mom, obviously I've established was, 
But every once in a while, my dad, if I was watching something, would come into the room and sit down and for some reason take an interest in what was on my TV. If I was watching um, any video by ZZ Top from the Eliminator era, suddenly he was very interested in watching those videos. Wonder why. Um, he really liked, I remember one time we were watching, I was watching MTV and I touched myself, came on and my dad sat down and went, she's got some big jugs. My dad did not come from a PC era, but he really liked to watch Solid Gold. I wonder why. I wonder why he was so interested in suddenly watching music television with me. If I had Solid Gold on, my dad would come in and watch the whole show. I think he was a, a fan of Darcel. Um, just saying, it had something for everybody. I do think that maybe some people who were not huge music fans that didn't really care what was on the charts, or what was number one this week, maybe tuned in more for the dancers than anything else. Let's be clear. Darcel Wynn was the star of that show. Yep. I don't care who the host was. I don't care who the guest was. It was all about her. There was nothing like her, not even in the European market of like those dancers, like Legs and Company. They didn't have anybody like Darcel. She stood out to me. I was obsessed with her. Like just watching her, like I was just like, this is like, I don't even know what kind of woman this is. She was like an alien. She had that hair and she was always out in front. I never even noticed the other dancers ever. I was just like watching her. And um, yeah, she was pure sex and probably the major, major selling point of that. Broadcast. She was beyond gold. She was beyond gold. Beyond look gold. It up. If you look it up on YouTube, you can see she still got the moves. I will say, I will say actually as cheesy as some of this dancing was, I made references to showgirls and to Satan's alley and those were appropriate. I do actually think some of the early dancing we were seeing coming on the age of all these big dance movies, I think they, and dance videos, I think you could see an influence in, in the solid gold dancing on things like flash dance on things like the, um, the Paul Abdul videos, Jack Jackson's videos. I mean, definitely, I think it whetted the, you know, the public's appetite for kind of like very sexy avant-garde, you know, seductive dancing. And it definitely translated to all the music videos I saw. Because like I said, this show started in 1980. Yeah. And unfortunately, they don't get the credit for that in terms of choreography because we all remember the just horrible awkwardness of those same dancers trying to be sexy to Juice Newton, Queen of Hearts. Or Air Supply. <laughs> nothing at all. Yeah. <laughs> there's a really great, um, I went down a rabbit hole this weekend as I was preparing for the show. There's a really great compilation of like the best solid gold dance routines. I don't know who curated this, but to that person <laughs> doing the Lord's work and thank you so much. And they show someone singing, you know, a forlorn woman in like a Pat Benatar cat suit with rhinestones on it, trying to do some kind of interpreted dance on the floor on a row of steps to Love on the Rocks by Neil Diamond, like a really like anguish dance about love on the rocks. And it's great, it's great. They don't make TV like that anymore. It's this awesome. This is the kind of TV I'm trying to make. Like I need the book, <laughs> I'm trying to do this. I want like the pants people sing along junk routine. You know what I mean? I want like the most unlikely, I need, a, I need a troupe, I need the whole thing. I need the soundstage, just like whatever. That's what I want to bring back. I feel like we're, that there was something very, it was almost interpretive. There's so many, strange performances from not just solid gold, but yeah, like pants, people, legs and co like, you know, that are just like so strange with beautiful set design and, and beautiful lighting and costumes that, um, and I agree with you, Lindsay, you're absolutely right. That they, they don't get enough credit for really making choreography such an integral part of like how people like Janet Jackson and all these, you know, even Madonna were presenting mm -hmm. stage shows too, you know, like just, you always had dancers. Everybody had dancers at a certain point. 
I was just going to say, I would say the only, the closest equivalent to that aesthetic that I would see on um, network TV now or uh, mainstream television now would be So You Think You Can Dance, which, you know, is a little more highbrow, but you know, there is a lot of sexy dancing, interpretive dancing, and uh, definitely uh, a spotlight on the choreographers, but not as much spandex and not as much rhinestones. So Nigel Lithgow, you need to get on that and fix that. But, but I need I need st I need spandex and rhinestones, and then like they're they're dancing to like Emmett Rhodes or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> just I need to have like that juxtaposition of like or, you know what I'm saying? Like I don't know. I just think it, there's a lot of potential with that with surrealism that would be so amazing. So yeah, I will be bringing that back. Just I'm announcing it here. <laughs> Well, another show I want you to bring back, since we're on the subject, stay, like just to stay on the subject for a minute of shows that had dancing in it and kind of uh, were on that theme, like the American Bandstand template. Um, does anyone remember MV3? Because I think it was an LA thing, so I can riff on it for another hour, but I wonder how- It was syndicated too. There was, oh, a, there okay. was a bit of syndication because we had it in uh, beautiful Northeast Ohio. Did you? What, Rachel, do you know of MV3? You did not have it in Chicagoland where mm -hmm. I grew up. What a deprived childhood you had. I feel so sorry for you. MV3, and it was LA based and it was hosted by the famous, uh, co-hosted by the famous DJ Richard Blade, who, you know, was a fixture on K-Rock for many years out here in LA. MV3 was kind of a low budget, very super new wave, totally different head, totally. Very new wave version of American Bandstand. It was pretty much the coolest. I'm still so envious of my friend who was a few years older than me that got to dance on this one. I never got to dance on any of these shows. Every day I rushed home from school to watch this, particularly the week that was Adamant Week where they were showing just a different installment from their epic Adamant video plus Adam and Adam and the Ants, uh, Adam and, sorry, Adamant interview plus his videos. Oh, it was an Adamant themed week. I don't think I need to explain how cool this show was that they felt that Adamant needed five episodes all about him. Okay. It was cooler than what was going on on MTV at the time. And I remember so many of the performances again, like I, I feel like these, they must've been lip synced as well, but they just somehow maybe by the virtue of the lo-fi production, they looked more live than the ones the obviously lip sync ones on the bigger shows. But some of the people that I saw perform, I had to write a list that performed on the show was Bananarama back when they were still like all deep sea skiving era Bananarama. Berlin, Musical Youth, The Plimsolls, Trio, Josie Cotton, Three O'Clock, Wham! in one of definitely their earlier performances. It might, um, Altered Images, The Stray Cats, um, and Sparks, who seemed to get around quite a bit. They did all the shows, didn't they, John? But they showed like weird ass videos. They showed a lot of the videos that were on MTV, the New Way videos, but some of the videos I remember seeing that were in high rotation on MV3, the two that stand out to me that did not really get played on MTV, but were on MV3 more than once, was What by Captain Sensible. They played that like every day and I was fine with it. And they also played Hazy Vantazy, but not Shiny Shiny. They played John Wayne as Big Leggy, which you was never played anywhere. That video was so bonkers and strange and like weird. And um, so I loved it. I, w I really wanted to dance on it. I just, but you know, it's like MTV established this template, like we're going to show weird videos of, by artists that, you know, mostly from England that the radio isn't playing right now. But, but you know, a couple of years later, as the radio was catching up and MTV was now everyone's radio, shows like MV3 came around to be like, we're going to go even weirder. And there were probably a lot of other cable like local shows that I'm not aware of that were their own MV3, but what a wonderful, what a time to be alive that was, my God. You're bringing up a really interesting point, which is the idea again of like 
what shows were more like showcases for um, bands that you wouldn't know necessarily or discover. Like, you know, we, we brought up like, you know, SCTV in these places or, or Fridays or whatever, where they had a little bit like more new wave of a pool of bands that they would have on. And then I think what you're describing is important because MTV really changed. Like the early MTV videos were completely different than they were um, past like 1985. And MTV became very specific in the way that it marketed itself to its um, audience. It changed from, you know, went being very like R&B based to very heavy metal based, I remember. And then grunge came in and then that, that they were like, heavy metal, what What are you talking about? We never, we never played November Rain 20 times a day. You must be thinking of another channel. Um, so um, it, what, it did become important for some of these other shows to sort of like pick up that slack of being able to like, present artists that deserve to be on TV or deserve to have exposure and give them that exposure. Do you know what I mean? Even if it was just regionally. So, um, so that was like a whole other way that that kind of, it, it, they, MTV opened the doors in a lot of ways for that. And these like local dance shows or whatever, but um, that, night flight and, you know, we, shows yeah. that, you know, that really opened up your mind to discovering this world out there that you just did not know existed even, and not just with music and interviews, but with, with films and concepts and ideas and graphics and this, this world that like, I mean, it was not made for me, for my age, which was like, what, like eight or nine or something, you know, 10? Like, obviously I'm not their demographic, but I was the demographic. <laughs> We haven't even talked about Night Flight yet. I, you, we are the same person, Rachel, because I was about, as you were setting up all that, I was about to go, yeah, like Night Flight. And then you said it because <laughs> yeah. same person. But we I, haven't even talked about Night Flight. I do want to mention one thing that you know, about the regionality of these things. There was a little, you know, and this is, again, the John Nerd uh, tunnel that we're going to go down for a second. There was <laughs> a, a brief shining moment where lots of little low-power UHF stations around the nation converted to being 24 hour a day music video channels with their own local DJs and VJs. Wow. And if you go on YouTube and you go do a little search, you'll see some people have captured some video of this. And it's super interesting to see, you know, in Syracuse, New York, this local UHF station with their own, you know, VJs introducing Ultravox Vienna. <laughs> you just kind of watch it. <laughs> Fascination. Oh my God. It's a good thing I don't have to leave the house these days. I'm not going to leave the house. I'm just going to watch those forever. Well, I feel we need to take a break because we haven't even really taken that deep dive into Night Flight or the best show of all time in the history of television, putting on the hits. There's okay. so much more to talk about. So we, we need to take a break, drink some water. I am. Um, I'm putting on the hits. Yeah, I'm really excited. Okay. Oh and, my God. Yeah. And it includes Sparks too. Well, I love how Sparks is. Sparks is the through line through all of this, yeah. the baseline, and I'm totally okay with that, especially as a native LA person. So yeah. we are going to take a, a break because obviously this is going to be way too much for one episode. So we're all going to have to get back together for part two. So I, I think I, you already answered this, Rachel, but can you come back for a part two? I can come back for a part two, yes. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm already looking forward to talking uh, with you again. But before we take that break and 
you know, compose ourselves so we can continue to talk about more 80s television down the road. Is there anything right now that you want to promote or plug anything you're working on that our listeners could get excited about? Uh, well, yes, actually. I mean, you know, Network 77, which is found at network77.com, uh, has a lot of really groovy programming already up there. And they're including music, which just came out about a month ago. And um, there's a lot of beautiful stuff up there. And I'm working on another episode of Network 77 that's going to come out at the end of the summer called Eye on Tomorrow. And so anyway, you can follow Network 77 on all the social media. You know how to do it. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I have been Lindsay Parker and I've been joined today by the other John Hughes and me, John and Rachel want to thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented... They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.